This podcast is a publication of the Engineering Management Institute, where we are committed to building professional development systems, including project management and people leadership programs that support the growth of engineers and their firms. Download our AE Industry Trends Report for insights on the great resignation, remote work productivity, and people-centric cultures. To get your copy, visit engineeringmanagementinstitute.org. Hello and welcome to another exciting episode of the Engineering Career Coach podcast, where we'll be talking with Ahmed Wasfi. With a career that's seen him leading engineering teams in tech giants like Microsoft, Google, and AWS, Ahmed brings a wealth of experience and insights that are truly remarkable, from deciphering the core attributes that set exceptional engineering leaders apart to navigating challenges faced by new leaders entering the workforce. We're going to dive deep into the art and science of leadership. I'm your host, Jeff Perry. I'm the founder of More Than Engineering, and you can find more information at jeff-perry.com. And this is the Engineering Career Coach podcast brought to you by EMI, the first podcast dedicated to helping engineers and technology professionals with both their personal and professional development. Now it's time to jump into the main segment of our episode. Today I have with me Ahmed Wasfi. He's an engineering leader at Amazon. Ahmed, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Ahmed, you've done a lot of different things over the course of your career. Can you just share a little bit of an overview of your career journey to the listeners and share with us what does a day in the life of Ahmed look like these days? I've been fortunate enough to be in the, in the tech space. Started as a software engineer, as an individual contributor. One of the things I really like about our field is that you could experience multiple industries with more or less the same skill set. I worked in healthcare. Later on, I got into gaming. And then I got into productivity and then cloud and then now in ads. So it's, it's been an interesting journey kind of learning about all these different industries and, and experiencing them and more importantly, having an impact in those fields. In terms of a typical day, so I'm, I'm with Amazon ads today. I uh, run machine learning teams. We basically try and predict how likely it is that a user will take an action based on an ad. It's pretty exciting. I mean, the, the days are not really very predictable 100% of the time, but there is, you know, I try to keep a structure at, at least about 80% of the days I can kind of control. It's usually a mix between people-related matters or project-related matters or operations. We run live production services. So it's usually a mix of those, and, you know, we could dive into the details later on. We're going to talk a lot about leadership today, and leadership is a big word. It can mean a lot of different things to different people. And you've had different leadership experiences at Amazon, where you're at now, and previous companies. I'm curious to hear, in your opinion, what do you feel when leadership really means? And like, what are some of those core attributes then? We're thinking about engineering leaders. What separates great or exceptional engineering leaders from, I'm a leader or manager, but maybe not what we're really looking for? I think there are two core attributes that I've continue to see kind of over and over with every strong or, or successful leader that I've seen. I think the number one is definitely ownership. So they don't blame others. They don't make excuses. They're not victims in their own stories, despite the circumstances or what's going on. So they really own their space and they own trying to push things forward and, and getting to a solution or, or a positive outcome for their organizations. And that can mean multiple different things in, in multiple different times, right? Like it's being an owner is sometimes you have to do different roles or different duties, do things that 
a manager shouldn't do or is not supposed to do, but it's about owning it end to end. And interestingly enough, that one also shows up even if you're not a people manager. So you can be a leader without having the direct authority of actually having people reporting to you, but you can still have leadership qualities. And I believe ownership is is the one that, that really differentiates the strong leaders. And then the second one is is really for people managers, and that is putting your people first. You need to have some level of empathy, well, healthy level of empathy, I would say, but also putting the people first. You're there to serve the people on your team before anything else. And often, once you create a, a healthy environment for the people on your team, the project-related or the business-related things are much, much easier. I've never seen a project fail because of a, or, or I've rarely seen projects fail due to a technical issue or technical complexity. The majority of the time it fails because of people problems or some people dynamics within the organization that, that did not work out very well. You can point it back to people being selfish or putting their own interests ahead of the people on the team. Thinking about growing ownership or how we manage people, there's a lot to that. Like, So those are big categories in and of themselves, but like you've worked at some of the largest companies, most well-known companies that, that people know about, Microsoft and Google and now Amazon. How have those experiences where you've been led by others and, and had opportunities to lead changed your perspective and helped you identify ownership and people management as the core attributes that you're looking for? Every experience in every company teaches you different things and different aspects. So at Microsoft, for example, that was when I made the transition from being an individual contributor into a leader. It taught me a very important lesson, and that is leadership wouldn't be handed to you on a plate. The majority of the time, it's up to you to identify a problem and actually be proactive enough to propose a solution and ask for the support you need, and then more importantly, execute and actually deliver on that solution. And the majority of the IC to, to manager transitions that I know of involved individuals doing something similar, where they, they took ownership and they wanted to have a positive impact. And so that's kind of what I took away from my time at Microsoft. With Google, for example, it was it was slightly different in that it was interesting to see how the well, the various trade-offs that they make at the company. For example, they Google's very famous for having SRE teams or site reliability engineers. When if you compare it to something like Amazon or AWS, they have a DevOps model where the engineers are operating, but also they're the ones who write the code, but they operate the service at the same time. And often that they could overwhelm teams in, at times, but also you get to own it end to end. With the Google approach, it's still a different style, but it's still fairly successful. And they make fundamentally a, a different set of trade-offs where they need, they want people to specialize. You know, you have SRE engineers who are focused on reliability and that's their metrics. That's how they're kind of, their performance is measured, et cetera, et cetera. My experience at Google taught me more about that. There isn't a one size fits all to leadership. There isn't just one way to lead or one way to be successful. And often you need to be very strategic with how you run a successful company, essentially. On Amazon, and I spent a fair bit of time with AWS, operations was a big, big thing that I learned there. More importantly, kind of managing life services, managing a life site. Amazon has a very, their leadership principles are, you know, are probably known to most people by now, but they really run the company by those. And they have a very structured approach to kind of developing teams and and more importantly, replicating sort of positive patterns of behavior across the organization. On the ownership piece that I mentioned earlier, Amazon does, they call it single-threaded ownership, where they make sure that there's always a single leader for a particular thread. Could be service end-to-end, could be a problem, like, for example, you know, launching Kindle in new markets, and you have a single leader that owns that completely. 
And that really kind of emphasizes that ownership point where you own this space. It's on you to make the decisions to to push that forward. The really successful leaders that I've seen at Amazon that have done that over and over have a very high sense of that ownership that helps them a lot. Yeah, it's interesting to look at experiences in different organizations, as, as all of us will have over the course of our career, to think about how things are done differently. And, and it's not that, as you said, that it's one size fits all. This is the way, because structure is different than leadership principles and philosophy and everything like that. And, and, and all of those kind of work together. But in the end, given how a company or a team and a process is structured, we need to figure out how we best operate within that and act accordingly. But you were talking about, in particular, Microsoft, as you were moving through that transition of being an individual contributor to a leader, that's a transition that a lot of engineers will experience over the course of their career at some point. But that's a challenge, right? Because moving from an engineer, individual contributor to what their focus is to now I'm leading people, that's, it's a completely different focus and, and shift there. Maybe you can highlight some of the, the common problems you see you observe personally, maybe some of the challenges you had, and then also maybe you see in others as you've observed leaders making that transition and how can we overcome some of those challenges? Engineers by nature are drawn to look for sort of what are the problems, what are the negative things, how can I help kind of prepare ahead for them? It's a natural question that a lot of new managers, you know, would ask. There's a lot there, but I'll try to sum it up to at least, you know, three things that I see over and over again. The number one biggest issue or challenge is this idea of feedback loops. As an individual contributor, your feedback loops are really, really short. You, you get feedback really quickly about whether or not you're doing the right thing or your job is, is going on track. Well, hopefully you do. Hopefully. I mean, software engineers in particular have things like code reviews, for example, where hopefully you're sending up multiple code reviews you know, on a regular basis and you're getting some feedback from your peers on your code. So that's sort of like a smaller one. Hopefully you have metrics about the code that's actually running, say, in production. So you get to know, you know, we've got this many, you know, visitors on our website, for example, or we're making this much in revenue every month or whatever. So there's always ways to find that feedback. When it comes to managing people, what you're really doing is is on a much larger scale. You know, you're trying to grow individuals, you're trying to grow the business. And these things take months for you to actually see the results at the end. And sometimes it could be difficult to know if you're doing the right thing or if you need to pivot or, or do something else. And it kind of relates to, to this idea of second order of consequences versus first order of consequences. If I work out for a day in the gym, I'll be sore. You know, that's not the sign I should look at to know to stop that I'm actually on the right path. And I, if I keep going, I'll see results. And in some ways, it could be similar when it comes to management. But really overcoming that challenge, you need to get creative with ways to find kind of solicit feedback and, and essentially have some indicators that tell you you are in the right path. It could be very simple indicators from things like comparing kind of the productivity or the velocity or the output of your team. You know, at a project level, you know, we were delivering X plus 10% because of some process improvements. So it could be something like that. Sometimes it could be in as you grow individuals and, and look to kind of coach them and, and help them gain new skills, you could start to see that bear fruit. For instance, you know, you could see it in the way they communicate, the way they write documents, the way they kind of write code even at, at times. You could have little indicators like that, and that helps a lot by to give you kind of that comfort that, okay, cool, that it's actually going the way it's supposed to, or, hey, something is really off here and you, maybe I need to intervene. The second one is is this switch that happens between you know having a, a maker schedule versus a manager's schedule, like a lot of people like to put it. I believe it was Paul Graham that, that first coined that term. 
But the idea is, you know, as an individual contributor, your calendar is wide open. You really work best in large blocks of, you know, focused work, whether you're writing code or reading or, or writing a, a design doc or whatnot. As a manager, you're really jumping from meeting to meeting and, and your calendar is all over the place. And sometimes that could be really overwhelming and really stressing to actually deal with as you first make that transition. As one of my mentors affectionately put it, when I first made that transition, he told me I looked like a deer in headlights all the time because I'm always just like, what's going on? I need to run this meeting into this. And that takes time, right? But once through the help of a lot of people, I, I was able to kind of get a better handle on that. And it really it comes down to setting the right expectations and identify the key KPIs that you need to be driving forward and, and plan your weeks and days based on those. We can dive more into details about those later. The last one, it's really about this idea that, you know, it's a new job. It's not really a promotion. This is a completely new job that you have. You've built zero skills in. You, you have really good technical skills, maybe some soft skills that got you here. But there's a lot of new skills that you need to build and learn and develop. You know, things like people skills, uh, negotiation, you know, managing up, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you need to treat it, you're an amateur in that space, and you need to treat it properly to actually sit and learn the, the new skills required for you to succeed. The solution there is try to identify the gaps you have and, and systematically start tackling them. It'd be even better if you could do this with somebody more experienced, uh, like a manager, a mentor, or coach, for instance. For example, that I like to do with a lot of my clients is I have this EM assessment on my website that I make them go through, where it asks you a series of questions and essentially rates how good of an EM you are right now on a scale of one to 10. And that could tell you some indicator of, okay, I have some work left to do, or I'm actually not as bad as I thought I was. You got to have some sort of measurement of where you're at now and, and where you want to get to. But I especially love that last one you're talking about where it's a new role and there are new skills you need to develop. And so you need to attack this. How do I develop and, and build the skills as a leader or manager just as well as you did previously with how do I become a great technical engineer or whatever your role is at the time? It's a whole new set of skills and abilities you need to really work towards developing. Now, it's no big secret that leadership drives a lot of success of engineering teams. As people are becoming leaders or, or teams are trying to function well, there are a lot of leadership frameworks out there that exist. Is there one that you particularly prefer or like that can help or that has helped you or helped some of the people you worked with foster growth and productivity in themselves and their teams? There's one that I, I developed uh, almost as a combination of, of a lot of the things that are out there. And it's easy to think of threes, so I kept it to three main pillars, and, and I think it's been very successful for me personally and, and has been really helpful for a lot of my clients as well. The main three pillars in it is managing yourself, managing your people, and managing your projects. Happy to dive deeper there, but before we dive into it, the mental model that I have about this is think of it like a system or a machine that has you know some inputs, some outputs, and then based on the output, you kind of close that feedback loop and take the output and adjust the inputs until you have the outputs that you need. And that's sort of how I like to conceptualize it in, in each one of those three pillars or three areas. I would have loved when I started you know, managing people, I would have loved a manual that tells me exactly you know, what to do and how to monitor it. Just like you get a manual with any kind of piece of you know equipment or electronic device that you purchase. This is the closest attempt that I found to, to get there. Happy to dive into each of these pillars if you're curious. Instead of diving into everyone, I want to particularly dive into just the first one, managing yourself. Why is managing yourself so important is kind of a foundational pillar to getting this right. 
it is the foundation in my opinion, right? Because if you don't manage yourself very well, and I talk about everything from sort of fundamentals of, you know, sleeping, exercising, eating well, and then managing and organizing your own life, like, you know, emails, your calendars, your to-dos, your tasks, you need to have that under control to be able to manage other people and organize other people. And the problem is it keeps getting worse, uh, kind of the more senior you get or the more responsibilities, you know, that are thrown your way. So if you don't have a really solid system that helps you scale up as those responsibilities kind of add up, you're not going to be successful. I mean, you could maybe push through a little bit, the stress and, and the anxiety would, would get you eventually without the right system to kind of help you manage things kind of peacefully, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes plenty of sense. And so as these new responsibilities come, suddenly the volume of emails, the number of meetings you're talking about move into a manager schedule and suddenly it's meeting the meeting the meeting and a whole new set of tasks and responsibilities at a higher level that you need to manage and be tracking and, and looking at. Plus trying to, you know, how do I live uh, my personal life and manage relationships and my health and get the sleep that I need? There's a lot there in trying to fit that all in. What strategies do you recommend for doing this well to manage all these aspects while delivering the results you're looking for as an engineering leader? There's a lot, a lot there, like you say, and, and maybe you can unpack some of it. I think at a high level, and I'll try to maybe share some of the principles that I like to follow when it comes to these things that will be valuable for listeners out there. If people need more help with sort of implementing those, they're more than welcome to kind of reach out to me and we can discuss it even further. It starts with you, right? Like the what I call the fundies of sleep, eat, and move, right? Get seven to eight hours of sleep. A lot of the conventional kind of sleep wisdom, you know, have a sleep alarm, not a wake-up alarm. Make sure you're in a dark room that's slightly colder. Ideally, monitor your sleep. There's kind of gadgets that monitor how well you slept, and then you could start tweaking that. Oh, I ate a heavy dinner, and I noticed my sleep quality got impacted. So, hey, let's tweak this. So, it starts there. Eating and moving well, I'm not going to talk too much about. There's you know, a lot of literature out there. The biggest ones before we dive into sort of some of the principles for like, how do you handle a calendar and emails, for instance, I think 50% of it is about managing and expectations and setting the right expectations with your leadership. Most of the time we put more pressure in ourselves than we need to. We assume we should be doing all these things when in reality, maybe that's not really what, you know, what's been asked of us. So having a very explicit conversation with with your manager and your leadership about sort of what are our goals and, and what's realistic and what are we going to focus on, that helps to alleviate a lot of that, make the, the implicit assumptions, make them explicit. And that way, everybody's looking at the same map of what to do. So it starts with that. The next big one is your calendar, because as manager, you live in your calendar uh, most of your days. I had a, an old uh, mentor at EWS that used to divide up the calendar into uh, four categories. And he believed that you spend 25% of your time into each. So I learned that from him, but I distilled it down to just three things where I just have, you know, either people-related meetings, project-related meetings, or miscellaneous where just everything else. But, you know, similar to this idea of if you're working with a, with a personal trainer, for example, they'll ask you to write down what you eat. And even before you start counting calories or cutting things off or doing anything differently, just the act of writing things down and tracking them tends to make you aware of what you're eating. So naturally improves things a little bit. So that's the first thing I recommend. Basically, color code your calendar and, you know, into these three categories and measure how much time is spent every week in each one of these. And just look back at the end of the week and say, cool, is this how I need to be spending my time? You might find that, you know, 70% of your time goes towards project and only 30% is on spent on people. Is that really the split that, that would make you successful? Or was this an exceptional week for whatever reason? The second thing that people tend to forget is 
it's your time. You own your calendar. You own your time, at least a large portion of it. You get to set the rules. You wouldn't let somebody just walk into your home unannounced and, you know, sit down and, and do whatever. We let people do that with our calendars. Anybody could throw in a meeting with no agenda, with last minute, and we still show up and waste 30 minutes to an hour of our time. So be, be very strict with, with your calendar. Start by paying yourself first. So this idea of as managers, you still need focus blocks to do IC related work where sometimes I need to write a promo doc or I need to sit down and focus for a couple hours uninterrupted. Make sure those, those are scheduled in ahead of time. Take breaks. I've seen a lot of managers work through lunch, work through nine to five back-to-back meetings without taking any breaks. And your ability to make good decisions goes down as the day progresses with no, with your blood sugar levels going down, et cetera. So definitely schedule lunch breaks, schedule breaks in general, just a coffee break where you need that balance. You know, managing your energy, not just your time. It's often easier to have, for example, three back-to-back one-on-ones than one-on-one and then, you know, an executive review meeting and then uh customer call because that context switching is way more draining on on your brain than than if you just group you know similar meetings uh, together so that's another one as well i mean that's sort of like quick summary of you know just calendars emails is another big one as well but my two biggest principles there you know turn notifications off don't have the emails interrupt your work it should be the other way around emails are other people's priorities and work not yours and ideally have predefined times when you check your emails and hopefully avoid your most productive times, right? Not don't do it the first thing in the morning. For example, if most of us tend to be freshest in the morning and that's when your most productive creative time. So a lot that goes into it, but finding and creating that system, getting explicit for what works for you, the times of day that are best for you, trying to group certain tasks together can really help you manage that time and, and manage that energy and that focus. Like you're talking about is a big deal. Now let's move on to the next pillar you were talking about is managing people. And one of the best ways we do that is through those personal relationships and the conversations that are developed through one-on-one meetings. These one-on-ones can be an essential tool as leaders. So I'd love to hear some of your thoughts on how engineering leaders can make the most of those times so that they can build those strong relationships and help use those meetings to enhance the performance of the whole team. Whenever the topic of one-on-ones comes up, I I remember an old manager of mine who did not schedule one-on-ones at all. He was always busy, always going to other meetings, he'd be open to one-on-ones. He'd tell people, hey, you know, if you want to talk to me, schedule time. So he, was, he had good intentions. The key thing that he was missing there was that he's losing a chance to build a relationship with the individuals on his team. And later down the line, when, you know, a number of the senior folks left, he was caught by surprise because it came out of the blue for him because he wasn't really talking to them that, that often. So it's definitely vital to have regular one-on-ones like I said, kind of building their relationship, that's the most important thing. A lot of managers keep one-on-ones very business-focused. You know, they talk about product specifics or what the individual has been working on, for example, and that doesn't really help strengthen that relationship as much. So you want to also keep it, you know, about the individual and understand, you know, how their life is going, not even outside of work. Share something personally from your life as well. That's kind of how we maintain and build that relationship even even better. Some of the principles there as well, like I like to make sure we're to have aligned incentives on the team. So for instance, you know, an, an individual wants to get promoted and we have a large project that the business needs delivered. Cool. What chunk of that could that person own delivering? Uh, that way it's sort of a, everything is aligned incentives wise and it's a win-win when it all happens. And to do that, again, you need to have, you know, a system in place or mechanisms in place 
one of the very simple ones I recommend, every fourth one-on-one have it a career-focused uh, one-on-one where you set time aside to discuss the individual's career and, and how things are going and how to get to the next level and, and that sort of thing. Another one is to have a default or a fallback template if you really run out of things to say. Engineers tend to be introverts and it could be hard to sort of get them talking sometimes. I don't know what you're talking about. I've never met an introverted engineer. <laughs> I've actually had interesting, they have these plugins now that would measure what percentage of the time at a meeting you've been talking. It was interesting trying it in some of my one-on-ones because you could really see the introverts from the folks that are more outspoken. I've seen managers that would end the one-on-one, you know, in five or 10 minutes because there are no project updates and they think that's it. You know, the value of the one-on-one is, is done. To me, that's almost like a red flag or that's a sign that you're not dealing with those one-on-ones as efficiently, as, as effectively as you should be. So I have some sort of template to fall back to keep the discussion going. Maybe have a few canned questions that you could bring up as well. One of the ones I like a lot, and I, a lot of times I'd actually, I don't do this in every one-on-one, but I'd like to ask it as well, is what I call a happiness reading question. And, and it's um, essentially ask an engineer to rate how happy they are in a scale of one to 10 today. And it could be a work thing. It could be a personal thing that's impacting their happiness today. But at the very least, it opens up interesting avenues for discussion where you could either understand more about the work or understand more about the person. You know, you're a seven, why not a nine? You know, you're a nine, why not a six? And especially when you see variations over time. That's also one of those uh, little ways to get shorter feedback loops where you can kind of keep tabs on happiness level overall in your team. If, you know, if everybody's telling you they're a four out of 10 consistently, then probably you're doing something wrong as a leader there. We're talking about managing people which means we need to build those relationships. So focus on the person, not just the transactional projects and tasks that they're involved in. Yeah, we need to take care of those things and that's what we're working on together. But working on building that relationship to understand and connect with the person at a personal level, is gonna help you and them connect and even improve the collaboration innovation when you get to talking through projects and tasks and all that stuff. So your third pillar is talking about managing projects. So let's get there. And just real briefly, can you, Share with us some of the critical elements that leaders can keep in mind when trying to build successful outcomes on projects. If you have the first two pillars in place, you know, you manage yourself well, you have good relationships with your people, incentives are aligned, projects are much, much simpler after that. They tend to run a lot, a lot smoother once that happens. In terms of the project, there's, you know, a, a few things. First one, understand that as a leader, you only have three levers at your disposal to impact a project resources, time, and scope, right? So resources, you could have more people or less people on a particular project or ask for that. Time, so you could negotiate, you know, extending uh, deadlines with your stakeholders or scope. You could decide to do less with, with the amount of time that you have. And at any time, these are really the three things you're trying to play with as you're trying to adjust for whatever goals you, you have. Knowing that tends to save you a lot of trouble, right? Like you, it's not about asking engineers to really commit or to really work harder when realistically, you don't have enough resources and the time and scope are just not going to work. Some things just need to take their time. The other one is you need to set up a structure for accountability. Essentially, you need to have very clear ownership of the project tasks and duties involved. You need a way or a mechanism to make sure people are publicly um, kind of reporting their progress on that and following up on that regularly. So setting up a way to, you know, having some sort of recurring sync to, to help people get them blocked and, and kind of update you on what's happening. 
with software, for example, you know, uh, Scrum is a very popular way to do that with things like daily standups and, you know, sprint plannings and whatnot. You need to have a high level way to break down the project and estimate when do you think the project would be done. And there's a lot of different ways you could estimate it. I don't want to get into the details. What matters is actually doing that estimation. And then more importantly, tracking your estimates versus actuals over time, because then that would tell you either you have a gap somewhere or you're consistently under overestimating. And so you could adjust your targets based on that. Personally, I like to use a Monte Carlo simulation, which gives you graph with confidence levels on those target dates. So it tells you, for example, you complete the project in six months with an 80% confidence level instead of just the date with no confidence level. So even communicating that level up to your senior leadership or your stakeholders gets them more involved and, and gets them to understand the process even better. I borrowed this uh, idea of a margin of error from the finance world. Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett's co-advisor, I suppose, or co-chair at uh, Berkshire Hathaway, he follows, he, you know, they have a list of principles they, they look at before investing in a company. They need to make sure the company has a competitive advantage and, you know, a moat and all that. But then their last one is a margin of error. So they always add 50% margin to whatever number they came up with. So they, if they evaluate the stock at $10, they only buy it at $5 just in case they were wrong in their calculation somewhere. I'm not saying add a 50% delay to your projects, but you know, leave a buffer. Have a room for that error, especially early on until you learn kind of where your estimates versus actuals are. Lastly, what I call reflection. Again, closing that feedback loop. So at the end of the project, make sure you run a retrospective, discuss with the entire project team kind of what went well, what are things, what are the learnings and takeaways and things we need to implement in future projects. Because really that iteration is what gets you much, much better over time. I mean, this is great to kind of think about these three layers, you know, managing ourselves, managing our people, managing our projects. There's a lot of different principles inside of those, but all of this comes down to how do we develop and become the great leaders we're wanting to become, right? And you've shared a lot of great things and really enjoyed this conversation so far. At this point, we're going to transition over to our Take Action Today segment of the show. When we come back, we'll get one final piece of actionable advice from Ahmed. We'll be right back. Now it's time for our Take Action Today segment of the show. Ahmed, we've talked about a lot of different principles about managing ourselves, managing people and teams and managing projects. It could feel overwhelming, all the different ideas and ways that you've talked about, some changes that people can make. How can any of our listeners really hone in and figure out what's the one thing that they should be focusing on right now that can really help them move the needle and make the improvements? I'm going to give an analogy and then I'll give them sort of the actionable step after that. The, the best analogy I, I can think of here is think of this like a video game. You're stuck at a particular level. You need help with one little thing so that you could win the level and get to the next one and then hopefully get stuck at a, at a bigger, better problem. The one piece of actionable thing that you could do today, I'd recommend that you sit down on yourself, do a self-reflection of sorts where you write down where you think you excel, areas you think you excel as a leader, what are the areas you think that need work. And then more importantly, run that by your manager and tell them, hey, this is how I assess myself today. Do you agree? Do you see things differently? So make sure you, the two of you align on that and then pick the one thing that needs work the most and tackle it. And then essentially rinse and repeat forever, really. It never ends. That's a process. Ahmed, this has been such a fun conversation. I uh, really appreciate the insights that you've shared. If people are interested in connecting with you or learning more about you and your work, where would you point them to? My website would be the first uh, place I point them to, uh, the Thriving EM. 
thriveinvestor.com. All the resources we've talked about today, including you know the EM assessment, um, if you just go to the thrivingmcom slash Coach, they'll find the resources along with the full link to the podcast. Well, thanks so much. So glad to, to talk with you and wishing you nothing but continued uh, growth and success. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed the episode today. We would love to hear your feedback, comments, and questions. You can go to engineeringmanagementinstitute.org where you'll find a summary of the key points discussed in the episode as well as links to any of the resources or websites that we mentioned in the episode. And don't forget to check out any upcoming live webinars this month at the website as well. Additionally, for any engineers who feel like they need extra help taking the next career step or finding clarity in their careers, I've created some free training resources with an opportunity to join a more intensive program called the Engineering Career Accelerator. You can find more information at engineeringcareeraccelerator.com or you can go grab my career clarity checklist found at www.engineeringcareeraccelerator.com slash career dash clarity. Until next time, I wish you the best in all of your engineering endeavors. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to download the latest version of our AE Industry Trends Report to get answers to the questions that you want to ask your staff, but you may be afraid to do so. How long will the great resignation last? How long should you allow employees to work remotely? And how are successful firms using data to grow sustainably for the long term? You can learn the answers to these questions and more by downloading the report at engineeringmanagementinstitute.org.